0: Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithal. Wellwithal believes that self-care is community care, premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithal's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly well with all.
1: Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered.
4: Delegates and fellow Americans, I humbly and gratefully accept your nomination for the presidency of the United States.
3: It was Massachusetts delegates who helped put Donald J. Trump over the top, but not everyone is on board, Governor Charlie Baker says it's important that you vote, but he's not planning on voting for president. Plus, Ted Cruz booed off the stage, Melania Trump in hot water, and other highlights from the Republican National Convention in Cleveland. Here for our special unconventional convention coverage are the Mass Politics Profs. They are Maurice Cunningham, Associate Professor of Political Science at UMass Boston. Hi, Mo. Hi, Kelly. <laughs> Peter Ubataccio, Associate Professor of Political Science and the Director of of the Martin Institute for Law and Society at Stonehill College. Hello, Peter. Hi, Callie. Shannon Jenkins, chair and associate professor of political science at UMass Dartmouth, Welcome, Shannon. Hi, Callie. And on the phone, Gerald Duquette, Associate Professor of Political Science at Central Connecticut State University. Hello, Hello Gerald. Hi. Well, let's just dive right in. Trump made his big speech last night. Um, there is some uh, general analysis that people thought it was dark um, and that uh, with, with uh, sort of without hope that he presented a state of the union and the nation that, people thought was maybe extremely depressing. But, hey, you haven't had a chance to uh, um, listen to it and think about it in a more contextual way. Peter Obutaccio, how did you see it?
0: I agree completely. And and it demonstrates what we've learned about Donald Trump um, during this entire season. He's unwilling, has no desire to pivot to a general election strategy. His entire focus has been on... um, Uh, doubling down on his base, which looks like it is angry white men without a college degree. That's where he gets his highest levels of support. And he's using uh, fear tactics to try to ensure a high turnout among that group. There is very little in that speech uh, that would appeal to anyone outside of his base of support. And uh, uh, having listened to and watched, uh, sometimes in person, uh, acceptance speeches from nominees, I would agree that it is the darkest, uh, most fear-filled uh, acceptance speech in modern American political history.
3: All right. Let's take a listen to what he said to, you know, um, so that people can understand what you're saying in response to it. And this is Donald Trump in his speech talking about the state of the world.
4: After 15 years of wars in the Middle East, after trillions of dollars spent and thousands of lives lost, the situation is worse than it has ever been before. This is the legacy of Hillary
3: Clinton — death, destruction, terrorism, and weakness. So, Shannon, um, do you agree with Peter after hearing a little bit of Trump again and and Peter's assessment of it?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, it was interesting to me because it was a long speech, right? One of the longest speeches we've had in modern convention history. Yet it was it was completely lacking in any specifics. It was all vague negativity designed to stoke fear and. Appealing to a small group of voters, there was some half-hearted attempts, I think, to reach out to other voters, but because there were no specifics about how he was going to help those groups, LGBTQ, folk, you know, uh, women, you, you couldn't ha- – they didn't have anything to latch on to. So, If he's going to try to broaden the base, he's got to get into specifics, which he seems unwilling to do. Um, And so I don't think he was successful in doing any of that. It was just stoking the fear among his current base of of voters. But Mo Cunningham,
3: some people would say – your acceptance speech, you don't have to really have specifics. This is your chance to sort of set the tone for what you want. And then on the trail now, you're going to do all the specific things. Um, And so in that way, he was presenting not so much um, a dark perspective, but a real perspective that a lot of people are living.
2: Well, he certainly did set the tone, but uh, a leader does more than reflect uh, who we are. Uh, A leader conveys to us what we can be. Uh, In this speech, uh, he he talked about what we can be is fearful and more fearful. And, you know, when I take the oath of office, everything will be relieved. Well, that's just foolishness. Uh, An American president in particular uh, has the opportunity to be educator-in-chief. In in, in the dark days facing our existential crisis of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln uh, called for us to uh, resort to the better angels of our nature. There's none of that in Donald Trump at all, and it is deeply disturbing.
3: How do you all respond to his saying, "I alone can fix it? Some people took that as um a direct quote from the Bible, if you will, but I mean it in this way uh, that um it, he means "I alone can fix it and without regard to the fact that he will be working cooperatively in a system of government that's set up specifically to work with a congress and um and, Callie, and he parts. has no idea
5: how a bill becomes a law okay, there you go all i right. mean <laughs> and he and he has no intention of figuring it out. OK. Right. And when he wants to tell you how he's going to do something, he he just says, believe me for, well, for Donald Trump. Believe me is an explanation.
3: So, did, Gerald, did you hear did the darkness or, or what some are calling dark tone of the speech bother you?
5: It's just exactly. It is, in fact, the horse that brung him. It's uh, he's just sticking. He's basically assuming something that a lot of political scientists believe that this is a base, you know, building election. And there's no there's no swing voters. It's just about getting all your people out. And so he's just focusing on that. He's made the assumption, I think, that his message is what it is, and it captures. It would capture sufficient number of voters as long as they get them out.
3: Okay. Um, now I know. As others have, um, he said law and order, you know, a billion times during the speech and uh, not a billion, but quite a lot. And some heard that as if you're saying law and art order and and at every opportunity, he raised up the police officers, you know, sta- going to the states where they were killed and the, the recent killings and saying we have to stop this, blah, blah, blah. Didn't appear to be saying anything else about other kinds of killings going on and what he might do there or how he felt about it. And so some heard law and order as particularly divisive, Gerald. Let me go back to you because you were seem to be going sure. in that direction how did, how did you hear that
5: well that 's exactly right. He knows who his voters are, and he 's going to speak directly to them and to their prejudices throughout that 's what he 's always done i would I would agree that there were some ham fisted efforts to say that you know that minorities and women et cetera you know believe me i'll be good for you you know so those were sort of silly almost uh pro forma gestures but the reality is throughout the speech he was continuously just talking to the base we all know he's talking to white men without a college degree
3: okay anybody else want to add to this well it trait? also just
0: flies in the face of a- Facts: Crime is uh, remains at all time lows, and, uh, and 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 now there are real issues uh, with. Um, and
3: so do police killings. By the way, we should say. Well, that. Well, that's right. Yeah, now, yeah. now
0: it's hard to say that as a fact in light of the events it's in horrible. Biden Rouge Dallas, yeah. but it does remain a fact, mm-hmm. and. Um, he, he uh, in, in Mo's point, is exactly right. Instead of using those as opportunities to lead and to talk about where he intends to take the country and um, the intersection of race and violence and, and, and police shootings, instead of, instead of doing that, he's using those examples to stoke fear and to try to make the claim, which is factually dishonest, that, uh, that crime is, is out of control and that we have every reason to be afraid.
3: That's Peter Upataccio from Stonehill College. Uh, did you want to add, Mo, you seem to be scribbling something there. So, <laughs> No. Well, it does remain a
2: fact, but this campaign has nothing to do with facts. It has to do with emotion largely. Uh, and I would add, uh, in that, in the, I didn't watch every moment of those four days, but there was no recognition I saw of, 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 uh, of police shootings of uh, African-American individuals. In the midst of this, we had another video of a gentleman down in North Miami who was down on the ground mm-hmm. with his arms up. Uh, no threat to anybody, and was was shot by the police. Unfortunately, that man survived. But there was no recognition of that sort of thing at all in this convention. It's like it doesn't happen.
3: Yeah, no, and that was a behavioral scientist who was caring for an autistic man, and while he was on the ground with his hands up, just for people who don't know the story, he was narrating to the police who were called to the scene saying there was some guy waving a gun. Um, They mistakenly were referring to the autistic client that he was treating who had a toy truck in his hand. Um, And he said to the police, hey, he's autistic. He's got a truck. My hands are up. And they shot him anyway. And according to the guy who was shot, thankfully, in the leg and and not shot dead, the police, he asked the police officer, why did you shoot me? And he said, I don't know. All right. So that's just a little sidetrack so people knew the story of what's going on. Shannon, one more thing on that.
1: You know, I think in some ways, perhaps Trump is trying to expand his base outside of white Men to married white women. Um, You think about the segment of soccer moms, security moms, uh, women who are suburban women. Myself would be Mm -hmm. in that demographic, although I don't that doesn't appeal to me. I want to be clear about that. But those concerns about safety. Um, and and fear and stoking that fear about the safety of their family their children um, Republicans have historically done pretty well among married white women um, and so perhaps perhaps the the trump campaign sees them as a as a as an opportunity i saw some polling data recently that said that i couldn't believe this but that Clinton was only up 10 percent among women over trump which to me is just astounding. But if you see that, you perhaps sense some opportunity there, um, particularly among, among white married women, um, to stoke that sense of fear and to invoke their feelings of the need to be safe and to keep their family safe.
3: Well, I have to say uh, that must be a general poll because all of the um, swing state polls have them dead even, which to me is um, more predictive of whatever. Because in my mind, you, you are the experts on this, if she's dead even with him, Given the resources, given where they're coming from, given what we know in general about where people stand on certain issues that she represents and he represents, then she's losing, if she's dead even, in swing states. This is my assessment. Somebody tell me I'm wrong.
5: Well if, you're talking about, well, if you're talking about
3: issues and
5: yes. if we just – I mean it has been true for many, many cycles that if you just take the issue positions of the two major party candidates, remove the two people and just try to figure out where the American people are on the issues, that the Democratic candidate is always well ahead. Of the Republican candidate, So in terms of issues, this is a typical election in that on the issues, uh, the Democratic candidates positions are far more attractive. Last night, you saw Trump trying to co-opt several of those positions. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. And he, he so somebody right right working for Trump understands that. And they are trying to create at least the appearance that folks who uh, care about the issues that Democrats are better on are going to think that maybe Trump is their guy.
3: Yeah, I want That's a perfect transition. That's Gerald Duquette um, of Central Connecticut State University. To the two places in his speech that he ad libbed, um, one was about event to evangelical supporters saying, you know. Honestly, I probably don't deserve your support, but I appreciate it, which was true. Um, and then the other, the other part was uh, his uh, reach out and talking about LGBTQ, LGBTQ um, uh, folks. That's a demographic he definitely wants. I want you to just uh, hear a little bit of what he said here. This is Trump.
4: As your president, I will do everything in my power to protect our LGBTQ citizens from the violence and oppression
3: of a hateful foreign ideology. Believe me. Now, there's a couple of things there. He also, the part that, that was scripted, but the part that was ad-libbed, he thanked the crowd for supporting Peter Thiel, who came out and spoke and said, I'm an openly gay man, I'm an American, and I'm a Republican. And he got applause, which was, you know... Given that the Republican platform says we don't support this, Peter Ubertaccio, this is wildly uh, radical, really. Well, I think
0: probably mm-hmm. not, not, not so radical. For you don't one, and so? no, I don't. I mean, uh, uh, feels not the the, the first. Uh, gay person to speak at a Republican convention, I suppose, right. it, yeah, well, right. no, Absolutely. he's not the first. Not at all. Um, okay. uh, it, it is something for that party that uh, when he spoke, the Texas delegation didn't bow their heads in prayer as they had done before when an openly gay person spoke from the platform. So I guess that that is progress. Mm-hmm. Um, he clearly didn't read the party platform and and um, <laughs> uh, the delegates have. uh Uh, I I don't think that 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 is going to do anything in terms of how that community votes. Um, When Donald Trump used a portion of his address to... Uh, discuss that community, it was in reference to the massacre in Orlando that is hardly controversial, and mm-hmm. delegates are are not going to sit on their hands when the Republican nominee says he wants to protect us from radical Islamists. It just mm-hmm. so happens that the target in Orlando was the lgbtq community it. Um, it, he wasn 't he wasn 't praising that community he wasn 't talking about how inclusive the Republican party is and so then to then thank them for. Uh, applauding his uh, the con- the kind of comments he's made this entire campaign is I think it's a stretch in my mind to to suggest that th- that means anything in terms of the Republican Party. I don't th- Donald Trump has uh, unlike other Republican nominees, he has not used uh, gay rights or gay marriage as a wedge issue in the way that that previous um, nominees have. So I think, again, that's telling, and that may come from the fact that he's, he's, his background is in business, where this is not the visceral issue that it is in, say, evangelical politics. Uh, but the Republican Party is not going to change as a result of, of that one ad-lib line or one additional uh, openly gay speaker at their convention.
3: All right. So, Shannon, that's uh, you said you thought these were – or maybe Gerald, one of you said it was a half-hearted right. attempt to uh, right. reach out and broaden the, the demographic, and th- and Peter just shot that down, and said this wasn't successful. So right, but, well but- it's,
5: it, it, here, <laughs> let me give you another example of his attempt to sort of have it uh, both ways when he talked about the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, he basically said, uh, you know, we're going to make sure that we replace Scalia with somebody who has the same judicial philosophies, he said, which is absurd. but uh, And so and someone who actually goes by the Constitution, et cetera. So basically what he said is he's he everybody listening, the people who are on the right know that he means what they want. And theoretically, the people, the low information voter that he imagines in the in the uh, TV audience doesn't realize that he's just said something that means, you know, crazy right wing court right Hmm. so in other words he he in he's there are two ways he tried to reach out one the sort of vague you know universalistic sounding thing that is code in one sense his the people in the room know that it means you know right wing and maybe the people in the tv audience don't know that and then there's the ham-handed uh you know i'm going to be great for women believe
3: me Hmm. shannon you were dying to say something about that
1: well, you know, I mean, I I, I I was just thinking it was really telling that he used the – in talking about the LGBTQ community, talking about protecting them from foreign – Yes, right, but not yes. domestic, right? right? We don't care about what happens to you in the United States because we've just adopted the platform that strips away sort of we would like to strip away every advance you've made in the past decade, right? Mm-hmm. So, we'll protect you from outside, but inside you don't have any rights or any protections because we don't want to give that to you. And I mean, who's going to who's going to say, "Boo, I want, you know, people killed by, you know, foreign terrorists." Of course, they're going to cheer for that. That's an easy cheer for them. And so it's, it's, it's not going to move anything, but it, 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 Creates this fuzzy, you know, look for him among low information voters. Though he does care about those people when people who know, know, he know that they don't.
3: So, Mo, um, so the Texas delegation did not bow its head and pray, as uh, Peter Upatachio pointed out. And that's a difference in, you know, because these were the kind of issues that really uh, social conservatives stood firmly on. And they didn't boo him in the middle of saying this. Um, At the same time, I wonder, does it give strength to the log cabin Republicans, the the guys and women who've been around for a while who are gay and inside the Republican Party and been fighting the good fight against this stance of the social conservatives? I suppose to the extent that
2: it is not a focus of Trump and Trumpism, I suppose that it would be. But it's still latent there. Um, The evangelicals uh, had a lot of influence on that platform, which is – uh, very anti-LGBTQ, as Shannon pointed out, uh, that community has a lot to worry uh, about, not only with a, a, a hateful foreign ideology, but a hateful ideology that exists in a number of states uh, that have tried to push back on same-sex marriage and uh, and um, uh, public accommodations. So I don't think it signals any sort of advance other than it's just not an emphasis uh, of Trump. Peter's right. In, you know, in the corporate world, in the New York world, in the world of business elites— The gay issue is... People work with with gay folks every day. They have an understanding of it. It is different than the Texas delegation. I'll say that.
3: Hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Here with me is Mo Cunningham. You just heard him. Associate Professor at UMass Boston. Peter Rubitaccio, Associate Professor at Stonehill College. Shannon Jenkins, Associate Professor at UMass Dartmouth. And Gerald Duquette, Associate Professor at Central Connecticut State University. They are together mass politics profs. And we're talking about uh, the convention that just passed, the Republican National Convention, and um, their take on what happened there. So let's move on and to something else that seems to be a general acknowledgement, and that's high praise, uh, however you feel about uh, what they stand for, the Trump older children who spoke all through the week, spoke very well of their father spoke presented themselves well. the last person uh, in that group was Ivanka, who introduced her father, and specifically her job clearly was to reach out and hit um, some issues that had to do with women, drawing in shannon that group that you that you said have typically been in a Republican uh, corps around safety issues, but she wanted to talk to them and did about pay equity and how he'd been strong about that, and um, he's always been uh, gender neutral, she said. How did you read that?
1: Well, I had to laugh because right before she said he was gender neutral, she said, if you go to my father's construction site, there's all ethnicities of men there. (laughs) And I thought, oh, but there's no women. Right? I mean, women can work construction in this day and age. Right. right? But I thought it was really telling to, to tie into my earlier point that her point about the wage gap was not that it's gender that it explains it. It's having kids.
3: Yes, right? motherhood. So who are
1: who are you targeting? You're yeah. targeting married women, married women in the working class who are maybe married to men. Who you, you're trying to pull them in, and and I also thought it was very telling that it seemed very confusing to the floor. Right? She said, "My father is going to make childcare more affordable," and they thought, <laughs> "Do do I clap? Big government <laughs> is going <laughs> to get involved in child care. It was kind of <laughs> like, uh, right? They weren't really sure. What to do with that. So she was trying to expand. But at the same time, it it seemed to me that the base that was there just really didn't know what to make of that. They were just very confused.
3: Gerald, what's that indicative of then? Do you think um, when they when she hits the trail and he hits the trail, he's saying one thing, she's saying another. Where does that leave voters who are trying to make a decision? Well, uh,
5: they assume that they can try to be everything to all people. They assume that they can go to uh, audiences who, for other reasons, are predisposed to like Trump but have a problem with his hard edge social conservatism or whatever. And so they send Ivanka to that group. And so their assumption is that there's enough people in America who want an excuse to vote for me. Right. Mm-hmm. They, they think that there's enough sort of white people who will who really want to be convinced to vote for Trump. I don't think that's true, but but that's clearly how the they're using their resources. Right. Ivanka Trump. I, I have to I have to share with you that I was watching it with my 16 year old son and uh, his response to Ivanka was it, it was sort of funny. He he basically said, I, I feel like she was trying to, you know, brainwash me. I, she, and she, in one sense, she was sort of mesmerizing. In the other sense, I knew everything she was saying made no sense. And I thought that was an interesting an interesting response, in other words you know they they put this very intelligent, very attractive young woman up there, and they just hope people are going to uh you know vote for her
3: hmm well, that's interesting
0: peter well uh you know the the problem with both of the or or the testimonials that came from his children is that they they are completely at odds completely 100 percent at odds with the kind of campaign that he's run Mm. so so you end up with this 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 very strange situation where he he said earlier and and the list is too long to go into all of the examples of his um misogyny right on the campaign trail right he said voters wouldn't vote for carly fiorina because of her face and then you have his his daughter standing up uh, last night, telling us how how wonderful he is in terms of women's rights, and it, it's it's incongruous. It it doesn't make any sense given the kind of campaign that he's run, and so uh, he has still yet to be hit with about a billion dollars worth of advertising from the Democrats, reminding voters of the kind of campaign that, using his own words. It's only just begun, and and I so I think that that the testimonials from the kids don't count for anything because. Hmm. Because n- none of us who've watched this unfold think, oh, yeah, that makes sense given the things that he has said and done. They love their father, um, yeah. obviously, sure. no doubt. Sure. And so, so I think we, we – we, we always have to discount what a child will say yeah, <laughs> about right. a potential political leader because they love their father and they offer us some insight and they're certainly trying to humanize him. But uh, I don't think that it's going to sway many voters.
3: Well, Mo, um, the Hillary Clinton campaign did a rapid response already around uh, some of the things that uh, uh, Ivanka uh, Trump brought up with regard to you know, women in the workplace, and found a clip from him talking about pregnancy was a big nuisance in business. <laughs> so that's kind of going, Shannon, to your point, going against the... Uh the motherhood thing, what, what do you think about that? That's the first strike.
2: You know. First, let me say that before <laughs> I came here today, I checked my job approval rating with the kids. It was very <laughs> high. It was huge, <laughs> as a matter of fact. Uh, <laughs> I'm the non-disciplinarian in the family, that's why. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I think it, it also goes to what Peter says. There's a long record of the things that he says just not matching up, and I thought, you know, I didn't pay a lot of attention to the kids because I thought it was a little odd that you know how many family members didn't speak it was and and one of them uh one of the the uh, sons got up and said oh we want you know we go out there and we hang sheetrock. i thought is that credible does this kid hang sheetrock? i don't huh. think so mm-hmm. right. uh, but it just fit in with so much of of the trump fantasy world and the picture you know and there's always you know there's always a little bit of fantasy more than a little bit of fantasy in campaigns you're trying to sell the convention is trying to present you in a certain light but uh the disconnect between the trump we've seen since June 16th of last year when he came down the stairway at Trump Plaza and the one that his children spoke about, it's a—it's an enormous gap.
3: So she is – so Ivanka uh, is not going to be able to, as some suggested, maybe pull some of the folks from Hillary Clinton around these issues because, you know, um, she said it very well and she seemed to – give examples of how her father is, is is doing all this stuff. Now, to your point, it was big government. A lot of Republicans did point that out and say, wait a minute, that's not kind of where we go. Mm-hmm. But he's a different kind of candidate, everybody said, right, Shannon? I mean, does, uh,
1: absolutely. Will she pull
3: some women this way?
1: I, I, don't, I don't know. but I, I don't think she's going to pull feminist voters at all, right, who tend to be concerned about and care about these issues. But, you know, for people who are struggling to stay afloat in the middle class, you know, women who are working and who are trying to juggle child care and work um, and who are angry, maybe, maybe, um, you know, maybe they can overlook that if they see there's something in there for, for them.
0: You know, uh, D- David Bernstein has mm. pointed out over and over again when he looks at who speaks at conventions. I mean, you took and, and, and I saw this early in the convention week. Most of the WGBH
3: contributor uh, continue. Yes, uh, yes most so. <laughs> of the women
0: who were speaking on that first night mm-hmm. were notable for um, the achievements of somebody else or the death of somebody else. Interesting. And so, uh, when when you that's going to be radically different than what you see next week at the Democratic convention, where the many of the women who will be speaking have their own significant political. Achievements, And I raise that because um, Ivanka Trump is clearly a good surrogate for her father. She really does help to humanize him and she's not your, your typical uh, what you think of when you think of a Republican uh, woman. But the 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 women who are backing Hillary Clinton have their own political organizations. They have their own get-out-the-vote operations. They know how, how this is done. And so th- those tactics on the ground are going to count for a lot more than clips here and there of Ivanka Trump. She's not going to be doing a lot of – of uh, get out the vote, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 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 canvassing or, or the kind of hurly-burly of politics that gets people to actually turn out on Election Day. And so that's why another reason why I think her appeal is going to be extraordinarily limited.
3: But I, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that Joni Ernst, Senator Joni Hertz, or is she a congressperson? Senator. Uh, Senator. Senator. Um, did speak. And, you know, her achievements are her own, whether you like it or not. But so she definitely now she spoke out of prime time. It was right. weird. Very strange. Um, <laughs> OK. To
0: an empty hall. And hole. And, yeah. and she's from a, a really important swing state. So that was very the convention bizarre. planning here was yeah. uh, the mismanagement just south of amateurish. To, yeah.
5: the, the mismanagement of the convention is an important indicator of Trump's leadership style. Yeah. Trump, the problem for Trump, that, and it's actually been a very big problem in his business career as well, which is littered with failure, which we don't hear as much about from him, is that he feels that he has to actually be in control of everything.
3: And so and he, he was does, not, in this w- case. And, yeah, yes. and it's a mess. Yeah. And it's a mess. Well, I want to say that. I want to also say... Ivanka Trump did build her business herself. She's a very good business person. So don't people be writing any oh, of y'all. Well, it's very different uh, I, than me yeah, building a business yeah, yeah. starting from listen,
1: nothing. When you have when you're a millionaire, money, you it's listen, a little easier. I, I
3: get that, but her businesses could have gone down into the toilet too, and they have not. She's she's expanded very well into many. She's done that multiplicity thing where she's figured out the market and done so. So gotta say she's that. she's
0: very smart. <laughs> and She's very talented, but I think mm. I think. When when parents can hand you, I get that millions Trust of me. dollars to get you started. That's why we were but discussing let's earlier. Let's say this, maybe I'm she, saying she didn't maybe, blow it, maybe and she's, she's built on it. Maybe she's know.
1: better than her father. Right? Her father was right. given a bunch of money, and if he had just put it in an index fund, right? They, people say he'd be worth more than he is. Not right. true for her. So let's give her credit for that. I'll I'm give you giving you. I'm
3: giving you. I'm giving her some credit because she does know her business. It's, business is she's done very well with that. Okay, so Mo talked about a fantasy world. Gerald talked about you know mismanagement. Management. I think the there are two huge examples of that during this camp during this uh, convention. Let's go back to the early day part of the week and Melania Trump speech. This was just <laughs> incredible to me. Um, if if people are listening and have been under a rock, uh, Melania Trump and whomever helped her with her speech lifted whole sections of Michelle Obama's speech. I mean. Of all people to live in 2008 you don't believe me let's listen to the clip rock and i were raised with so many of the same values like you work hard for what you want in life that your word is your bond that you do what you say you're going to do
4: my parents impressed on me the values that you work hard
0: for what you want in life that your word is your bond and you do what you say and keep your promise.
3: We want our children and all children in this nation to know that the only limit to the height of your achievements is
1: the reach of your dreams and your willingness to work hard for them. Because because we want our children in this nation to
2: know that the only limit to your achievements is the strength of your dreams and your willingness to work for them.
3: All right, there's more, but you get the drift. <laughs> I I was just completely flabbergasted. Um, about a couple of things, just want to put on the table, that she said herself to Matt Lauer. I wrote most of the speech myself. I don't know why she felt she had to do that. Everybody knows speechwriters do it. The speechwriters in question, according to a very detailed story uh, by the New York Times, did write a speech for her. Then they never saw it again in any version until on TV with the rest of us, and it had been changed by a friend of hers who's an ex-ballerina and an English major. And uh, apparently the ex-ballerina English major uh, was looking for... Pieces of former speeches that would express the kind of things that Melania wanted to express, put that in a draft, and then it ended up in the real speech, and the rest, as they say, is history. She did not get fired, for people who were wondering. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it's, I, I felt quite badly for her. Obviously, there, there, she, she felt um, – it was a really heartfelt moment talking about her husband when she clearly – uh, admires and loves, and um, as you know, this was her big introduction to a national audience. Uh, it's amateur hour. That, that's what right. the Trump campaign has been. Uh, they they don't do their homework. Uh, i don 't know that a, a speechwriter or team should have been fired over over mistakes such as this. I do think that their response was telling. She obviously right. didn 't write it herself. That is a trump family trait he didn 't write his book The Art of a Deal. Uh, of the deal uh, didn 't even come close to writing it. It was done completely by uh, a ghostwriter who 's been very vocal about that of late. Um, you know, I, I I can I can understand how those things happen, and and looking at student papers every semester, mm-hmm. I I get it. I I hope that the people who are at the level of uh, a presidential nominees. Uh, speech writing team are a little more advanced on these issues and understand the importance of making sure that you, you're you checking, fact checking, and then checking to make, uh, make sure that there's nothing that's been pulled. Um, but I think their response indicates to me that he surrounds himself with amateurs who don't know how to do their job. That team had one job. Yes. At, to prepare this kind of speech, to introduce. Uh, Uh, his wife uh, to a national audience, and they completely failed.
3: And, Gerald, I just want to say this. She has a good story. She didn't have to borrow from Michelle Obama. She could talk about her own life. I'm the immigrant. You think he doesn't like immigrants. He's married to one. Here's my deal. Why did they go? I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it.
5: Well, I think it's really (laughs) as simple as Peter is telling us it is. It's just incompetence. Uh, It's incompetence. And the problem is that they're not worried about that type of incompetence because their base doesn't care about this weird word plagiarism that they can't spell. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, in reality, they are, they are, they're going to be careless in many ways. But the response is going to tell you whether the thing they were careless about is something they care about. Hmm. And clearly, they don't care about getting everything right and truthful. Clearly, they don't care about the details. So when those things go awry, they'll just, you know, do exactly what they did, especially because they know that the people that they're preaching to are already with them. So it's not going to hurt. In fact, they can try to spin it. You're picking on my wife. This is, you know, liberal elites talking about mm-hmm. this fancy intellectual property. In other words, that he can spin this as a as a culture war, you know, episode.
3: Well, Mo, I, for me and or Shannon, I see you you're, you want to jump in on this. Let me just say, um, it's deeper than that because now you're stealing from a black woman. So now you got you all – Got, have a number of racial issues you need to address. So right away, you hate the Obamas. So that's like you know another whammy on that. Right. It's just it, the it, the
1: onion keeps
3: unpeeling and <laughs> it gets worse and worse.
1: Right. But I think to go back to Peter's point, right. There's a reasonable explanation for this. The speech changed hands several times. Right, right, right. right, I have a 13-year-old. I tell him when he messes up, he'll go, what? Uh, and I'll yeah. say, what's your go-to? Your go-to is, I'm sorry, I messed up. And if they had wanted to defuse the situation, in the morning an organized operation would have said – We're really sorry. The speech changed hands several times. And in the changing of hands, we didn't realize that these were actual quotes. That's it. End of story. That they chose not to do that in some ways suggests to me, like, you know, Trump tweeted later, oh, the most attention to a first lady speech ever, that they (laughs) kind of want this attention. They want it. Their base feels like. The liberal media is out to get Trump. And here's an example of the liberal media using this big word that we don't understand attacking poor Melania. So I think they may have stoked that a little bit. Right. And and instead of just saying, whoops, sorry, that diffuses the situation. Paul
3: Paul Manafort, uh, Mo, flat out said uh, she did not plagiarize. She had similar thoughts. <laughs> they may have been similar, you know. They're they're mm-hmm. these are not uncommon,
2: uh, and it's not an uncommon sentiment. Uh, what it goes to, though, overall, and the response, and, and Manafort, who just did, it, is supposed to be the pro in the room, and just did a terrible job this week, by the way. Um, is it's at the core of Trump ism and the way right. he goes about things, which is to just flout conventions and institutions and the normal byproducts and rules of politics, mm-hmm. including how to set up a good convention, including how to write uh, a decent speech that reflects the sentiments of the speaker, but is at least in some original tone or, or at least not out and out plagiarism. Yeah. Uh, right. and, and that's just, it's, it's Trump's way to flout those sorts of things. He does it all the time.
3: All right. So the other thing is Cruz, Um, Ted Cruz, who uh, he and uh, Trump did not uh, get along at all toward the end, even though they were buddies at the beginning of the of the uh, campaign season, uh, the primary campaign season, and made a big speech, 23 minutes or so, um, and uh, did not endorse uh, Donald Trump at his convention. Here he is.
2: If you love our country and love your children as much as I know that you do. Stand and speak and vote your conscience. Vote for candidates up and down the ticket who you trust to defend our freedom and to be faithful to the Constitution.
3: So the crowd was screaming, endorse Trump, endorse Trump, uh, Gerald. And He afterwards doubled down and said he didn't intend to endorse him um, and that he, you know, the man attacked his family, so it was personal to him, but also he thought you should vote your conscience, and that's what he said, and, you know, that's what he's standing up for. I thought actually Chris Christie had the best response. So, Chris Christie, he said, this is why everyone hates him in the Senate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that uh,
5: this is a great example of how the convention and his campaign is just like a reality show. This is the kind of thing you do when you're producing a reality show. You put the guy on who you can then say those types of great one-liners about. In other words, it, you know, in, it, I don't really watch these reality shows, but I understand, you know, I, I watch some, and I understand that they, they purposely stoke people's anger, get them on there to embarrass themselves. Right. That's that's yeah, like, I think, yeah. part of the formula. Right? I watch it. Yeah. So so certainly uh, this was what was going on here. This is a guy who they really did understand where he was at. They I'm sure they assumed he was going to at least try to, you know, slight the nominee. And they were saying, that's great. We we can stoke that up. We can use that.
0: Um, what do you think, Peter? Well, you know, Ted Cruz has his site, his site set on 2020. And uh, he thinks uh, that uh, by avoiding this and by kind of trying to keep his hands clean of this mess when Trump loses uh, in the fall, that he'll be able to help pick up the pieces of the Republican Party. You know, I think I think um, uh,
3: he's counting on him losing. He's well, yes. I mean, I think that he's, <laughs> he's like, betting uh, a lot of people betting. in that party are counting on him. Losing. Uh, I think mm-hmm.
0: that that yeah. that Cruz is uh, got the sentiment of the people he disdains. Uh, The kind of Republican establishment and elites in in Washington who – many of whom have nothing to do with Donald Trump and and, and do hope that he loses and believe that he will. Um, And yet, (laughs) you know, this would make a lot more sense if Ted Cruz hadn't actively embraced Donald Trump for many, many months uh, until it was clear that Cruz thought he might actually have a shot at becoming, you know, the only other person left standing – Uh, Trump act, as he often uh, did, despicably in attacking Ted Cruz's wife and uh, linking his father to the assassination of JFK. No reasonable person would then want to turn around and and, and endorse that that kind of person for president. And I think there's there's more – Honesty in Cruz's not endorsing Donald Trump, then there isn't a lot of the people who have endorsed him. Uh, you know, the, the Marco Rubios or, or or Paul Ryan's who you you know want to forget everything that Trump has said and everything that he stands for and still want to endorse him. But Again, you know, we're talking about Ted Cruz here, and uh, (laughs) uh, this isn't going to – there's nothing that Ted Cruz can do now in his career to endear himself to his colleagues. And Uh, uh, this just becomes another issue for them to use against him.
3: Okay, all of that may be true, uh, Peter Ubertaccio of Stonehill College, but Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth, let me ask you this way. You can feel all that, be mad at him personally, not endorse him, not vote for him and not go to his convention and say it.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I I think it was it was a miscalculation on Cruz's part if he's looking to 2020, which I think he is, um, because he while he got the sort of the never Trump people, he made them happy. He got the people who have come on board or are on board. He really angered them, the party first people. Um, so it wasn't a move to, you know, put himself above the fray and United. He just alienated a significant part of the Republican base. And, and maybe, maybe we should give Ted Cruz a little bit more credit. Maybe he knew he was doing that. Um, I I don't think so. I mean, everything I've seen and read about Ted Cruz is his ambition. Everything is in service to his ambition. So I I think he miscalculated in, in doing that. I think he should have stayed home. I think you're absolutely right. If he couldn't Take that step. If the
5: if Trump loses, the bet is successful. That's the thing. Nobody's going to remember mm. the details in four years or eight years. No one's going to remember Elephants the details remember. if he's <laughs> right, if he's right. Uh, well, you'd think so, but in fact, by supporting Trump, mm. half the party is failing to remember.
3: Well, we shall see on that one. Um, listen, um, we're choosing not to remember. Yeah. <laughs> (laughs) Well, there's much more I want uh, to dive into with you all. I am here. I'm Callie Crossley. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and I'm here with the mass politics profs. We're going to take a quick break to mull over all that we've said and more to come. Our special GOP unconventional convention coverage continues after the break. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Here with me to continue our special coverage of the Republican National Convention are four of the five mass politics profs. They are Mo Cunningham, associate professor at UMass Boston, Peter Ubitaccio, associate professor at Stonehill College, Shannon Jenkins, associate professor at UMass Dartmouth, and Gerald Duquette, associate professor at Central Connecticut State University. So we've dispatched with Ted Cruz and what some call, at the very least, um, tacky, if not disloyal, appearance at the Republican National Convention. Uh, let's circle back to talk about the attempted, some say half-hearted attempted, outreach or expansion um, to other communities. And what many at this point have called a abject failure in doing so, primarily by putting on uh, folks of color who spoke to a very narrow base demographic and actually annoyed some of the other black delegates who were there? There are about 18, I think, official uh, Republican delegates at the convention, and some of them complained bitterly about the tone of the speakers, the African American speakers. Here's one this is Sheriff David Clark of Michigan.
4: I would like to make something very clear Blue Lives Matter in America.
3: So now the crowd went wild. Uh, As many have pointed out, that's a mostly white crowd um, speaking about this. Nobody's uh, saying that some of what he said people wouldn't agree with, everybody wouldn't agree with, but he has a kind of a harsh take and one that uh, any number of African-American folks is really out of touch with the community. He's, uh, I've forgotten his title, he's a Uh, sheriff or a sheriff uh, in Michigan, and he's a frequent guest on Fox uh, as an, um, I mean, antagonist for anybody who looks to be (laughs) African-American, not saying (laughs) what he says. And uh, so the delegates there, who obviously are there, they support Trump, uh, were feeling... You know, that's not fully representative of, you know, who we are and what we want to have said. And it certainly doesn't allow us a chance to say, here's why we're black and Republican and why you should be supporting Trump. Um, Gerald, um, you're ta- sure. I'll let you start well, off.
5: Well, the, the, all of the outreach efforts uh, that we sort of find and claim to be outreach efforts are really just uh, – I mean they can 't be dumb enough to believe that they 're going to succeed in outreach to minorities, so what they are doing is they 're providing their sort of white base with a, something that they can use on the internet and in their uh, conversations no he 's not racist because of this no he 's not in other words they 're providing some uh, sort of semblance of uh, diversity so that that is a weapon in the rhetorical arsenal of all of his surrogates you can 't call him anti immigrant his wife 's an immigrant, whatever the case may be it 's really not designed to protect. To actually mobilize minorities, it's designed to make the people that he's already got feel better and have something that they can say when their liberal friends uh, make fun of Trump. Mo, well, yeah,
2: and it's thematic. Um, you know, one of, after the twenty twelve campaign, the GOP did a sort of post mortem report. Uh, what do we have to do better to win the presidency? And one of the key findings was we must do better with. Uh, Latino voters and other minority voters, but primarily Latino and Asian Americans. Uh, they do nothing for that. I mean, it's worse uh, after the tirades about right. immigrants that he brought forth again last night. So uh, I, I think I saw a figure recently that he he would have to win something like now 70 percent of the uh, white vote. Uh, that's an awfully high number because he's done that party has done nothing and in fact has dug themselves a deeper hole with respect to minority voters.
3: What's interesting, and I want to point this out, Shannon, before you weigh in, um, outside the convention center, going into the convention, where there's a group of Asian-Americans, Chinese for Trump. Um, There are these two women, oh, God, black people, um, who are running around the country who are almost do like a show for Donald Trump. They appear before. He speaks in many places, and he says, here are my African-Americans, and they're great, and they love me. And then there's this other guy who um, was... Almost in a fist fight with Bakari Sellers on CNN uh, a couple of nights ago in trying to discuss, you know, as Bakari says, can't we, can't I, as a black man, tell you I'm concerned about what is happening in terms of targeting black men, unarmed black men on the street, and also support. Uh, Police officers, why is that, you know, not a both-and situation? And Why are you all approaching this as though whatever? And the guy said to him, um, this is one of his ministers, said, I don't have to know the details of what Donald Trump is going to do for African-Americans. I am certain he's going to do something. There you have it, Shannon.
1: You know, I can't (laughs) can't really comment on the minority speakers because I didn't watch every single hour of the convention, Uh and so I didn't see any. At one point, Uh some guy came out, and he was really, really tan. I'm like, oh. I think I, I think and I was like oh no he's just like I I didn't see anything and and that is very telling that that I don't think minorities in their community saw their their experiences and their lives reflected in that convention at all. And I and I have to Except say... Except as a problem. Right. And I have to <laughs> say, uh, this morning on Facebook, you know, you get into some mm-hmm. of these discussions. Uh, one of my Republican friends told one of my black friends, you know, you should, you should talk to Shannon. She's a professor about what minorities need. And I said, did you just tell a black person to ask a white person <laughs> what's best for the minority community? Really? Uh-huh. But I think that's really very telling that... You don't really know what your interests are. We're going to tell you what your interests are. And I don't see how that's anything but completely alienating. There's just no – I just don't see it, it being successful. And
3: I just want to add that um, – Peter, did you want to add something to that?
0: Well, uh, our colleague uh, um, John Berg uh, from Suffolk University pointed out yesterday that uh, he was at the 1972 Democratic Convention in Miami where, and George Wallace was there. And George Wallace had more – Black delegates, yes, for him at the seventy-two convention. Now that there, I think, a couple asterisks there that require some further explanation uh, about politics in Alabama and the Democratic <laughs> Party that particular year. However, uh, th- that there are more black delegates for for Wallace at the seventy-two Democratic convention than there were total black delegates at the Republican convention. It, it that is a much more telling uh, barometer of the state of play regarding communities of color. Minority communities in this country and their relationship to the Republican Party than it's all, the array of speakers they have who come out and talk about you know things like law and order.
5: Mm. It's also a great example of Trump's complete ignorance of history mm. and his assumption that his base is also completely ignorant of history. Mm. It, it, right, America first again. You know, to to the literate, he's just said something that indicates sort of Nazi sympathies, mm. but to the illiterate, it's just Pat Buchanan speak,
3: right? Um, I just want to add that uh, I we are not just giving um, our assessment of it. We hear you here, who are experts in politics, and me as an African American host. I am now referring to quotes from African-American delegates who support Trump. They were unhappy with the speakers on the stage. So when you write me, just know that I'm referring to the people who are all in. They support Donald Trump. They think he's going to do some things, and they didn't like it. Okay, so there you go. Let's switch uh, locally, if we might now. Um, Our governor who is widely thought to be one of the most popular, perhaps the most popular Republican governor in the country, said he's not voting for Trump. He said that, he said that, he said that, but the rest of us should vote. Um, You know, he didn't go to the convention, obviously. We've talked about this a little bit in the past. Does it make a difference? You know, what— how, do, how is that read? And what does that mean for him, I guess, in the long term? Shannon, what do you think?
1: Well, you know, there's more unenrolled voters in, in Massachusetts than there are partisan voters. And, and I think Charlie Baker knows that he needs to keep and retain those uh, voters and his coalition. And, and, and I, so I think he's trying to sort of straddle it. Right. You know, um, Republicans are going to vote for him. I mean, what other choice do they have in Massachusetts? And so I think he's trying not to alienate, you know, those other people, independents and even some Democrats. He's got the highest approval rating of any governor right now. And he's, I think, just trying not to mess with that. And associating yourself with Trump, I think, has really nothing but negatives for him.
3: How does it play out looking forward? If, if people say Ted Cruz, you know, bad move, you should have just, you know— kept it to yourself or whatever, if you're looking long-term. Gerald, what does this do for Governor Baker, who everybody says is going to be looking long-term to do something other than be governor of Massachusetts? I think that he had the luxury in this
5: instance of telling us what he really thinks. I, I think that uh, Trump is uh, sort of someone that is very unbaker like Baker is a very thoughtful sort of technocratic guy. Uh, and I think he's as offended by the any intellectual tone of Trump as anybody. And so I think he has the luxury in his present uh, s- political situation to be honest about uh, the nominee. There really is no downside for him.
3: Um, Mo, what do you think about Scott Brown uh, saying, um, you know, he should reevaluate his vote and 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 or his his stance and and you know vote or uh, vote for the president? It, uh, yeah.
2: Scott Brown is, you know, in some ways has become a little bit of a, of a laughingstock. I think uh, with his uh, efforts uh, here and in New Hampshire and then cozying up to Trump, early. But I think I'm I'm pretty ambivalent with respect to Baker on this. You know. I, I think there's an imperative, two imperatives. One is, as Lindsey Graham said, I, can, I understand the animus toward Hillary Clinton. I really do, uh, that Republicans feel and a lot of people feel. But as Lindsey Graham said, you know, at some point, love of country has got to be more important than hatred of Hillary. Mm. And this is, in a, this is a case where I think the, there's an imperative against Trump and there's an imperative to get this party back to planet Earth. Mm-hmm. And, and and it has no signs of returning to planet Earth Baker is one of the few people, I think, uh, who could start to move it back And uh, I think it's a missed opportunity for him I understand it politically, but I think it's a missed opportunity I'm, I'm pretty ambivalent about it
3: So, Peter, let me just follow up with that and say You've uh, spoken about the fact that there's no competition in a lot of these local races uh, throughout the states And we talk about impact on down ticket If he says, I'm focusing on down ticket what Can that have any impact on that? Well, mm.
0: it it might. Yeah. I mean there there might be uh, some negative consequences for the Republican party this fall in Massachusetts. Um, due to the expected high voter turnout and the anti-Trump vote, I think think which will be significant. Remember, Mitt Romney lost this state by a historic margin and he was a former governor. I don't think Donald Trump is going to do much better than that. And uh, at some point, that starts to impact down-ballot races, right? Mm -hmm. When Romney was governor, he tried to to recruit and run all these Republican candidates around the state in the same year that John Kerry was the Democratic nominee. It didn't turn out very well. Um, The trouble is that the, the state Democratic Party here has really done a horrible job at recruiting candidates to challenge Republican incumbents. And given that there are so few of them, you might think that uh, they, they could have done a, a somewhat better job at, at getting good people to run against you know folks like Jeff Deal, who is who is Donald Trump's biggest cheerleader in Massachusetts. And the Democrats have failed uh, completely to do that. So I suspect the legislature, the balance in the legislature after this fall's election is going to look very similar to what it does now. There's maybe a few upsets, not many. There are no Republicans in of note running for Congress. That's not a surprise. That has nothing to do with Donald Trump's uh, ascendancy. They they just don't have any strength there. You know, I think that Charlie Baker, I I agree with Mo. I think that, that it is a herculean effort to want to move your national party. It takes a lot of time and focus and energy. And, and I think it's a very difficult thing to do and the chances of success given the, the, the trajectory of that party are not high. And Baker is shying away from that fight and he needs Democratic voters. That's, that is I think part of the dilemma for him. He needs Democratic voters and, and um, I'm not sure how this, how this plays out. He, he is trying to straddle this. At some point it becomes false equivalency. It's, he doesn't think Trump has temperament. He thinks Hillary has got these other issues as if those issues are the same. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, what what has emerged, and and Lindsey Graham has given voice to this and some others, is uh, they don't like Hillary Clinton's policies. But but do you think you can work with Hillary Clinton? Or do you think you can work with Donald Trump? The, these aren't they're not equivalent. Mm-hmm. Their issues are not equivalent. And I think that uh, if I'm if I'm Charlie Baker and his team, I'm worried that people start to think about that more and more often going into this fall. Uh, oh, I
3: just want to add. I got to stop thing. you because I'm out of time. So oh, I, gotta, I know. Um, but see, you'll be back next week. Well, we we, <laughs> uh, we have to leave it there right now because um, I want enough time to, t- to let everybody know that you will uh, join me again next week as we deconstruct the Democratic National Convention and allow Gerald to say whatever he was going to say <laughs> right there about Charlie Baker's non-voting Oh, now i got to write it down. Yeah, now you've got to write it down. All right, so thank you all for your great insight uh, in joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. for having us. Um, I've been with the Mass Politics props, and they are Maurice Moe Cunningham, Associate Professor of Political Science at UMass Boston, Peter Ubertaccio, an Associate Professor of Political Science and the Director of the Martin Institute for Law and Society at Stonehill College. Shannon Jenkins, Chair and Associate Professor of Political Science at UMass Dartmouth, and Gerald Duquette. Associate Professor of Political Science at Central Connecticut State University. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next week at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show and links to stories we discussed today on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. You can download our show podcast on iTunes. I'm Callie Crossley. Our engineers are John Parker and Doug Sugarts. Katherine Whalen is our producer. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH.